can't play football alone and you shouldn't do life alone. So join a group. Uh, hey, on your uh, chair, there's a program uh, catalog that looks like this. This is all of our groups that are available. Feel free to browse through that. Take this home with you. Uh, there's QR codes you can scan and get to the appropriate group. And uh, there's a group for you. No matter what season of life you're in, we've got a group for you. So uh, check that out. Uh, there's also uh, right in the lobby there an area if you have questions you'd like to ask, there's people there that you can ask questions to about groups. And uh, it's a great way to get connected. Uh, you don't have to know everybody here, but you should know somebody. And so that's the goal. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, so awesome to have you here. Hello to those of you joining us online, uh, those of you watching in our cafe, uh, those of you in our parent viewing areas. That's a great option if you do have small children that you prefer to keep with you during the service. And uh, man, we're jumping into this series uh, called For Better or For Worse. And the goal with this series is, uh, you know, this is a phrase that is often quoted at weddings. It's a part of a lot of vows. And yet I would bet that most of us on our wedding day were focused on the better and not the worse, right? And so uh, we really want to just jump into this and help people strengthen their marriages. And uh, I can tell you as a pastor, I hear a lot of people exchange vows. I officiate weddings and uh, uh, hear people exchange vows. And what's becoming more and more popular is for people to write their own vows. It's pretty common. Uh, and maybe you did this at your wedding. And I started to think about some of the vows that I've heard people write to each other through the years. So over the last few years, I've developed a spiel to help people when they say, I'm going to write my own. Because I've heard enough of people writing their own where I went, oh, no. And uh, if you're married, you'll know only people who aren't married would write these vows. Okay. Uh, let me just give you a couple I've heard. I promise to check in with you every day and listen with intent and compassion. Yeah, yeah. Those are the married people laughing, by the way. Just, I give that two months, tops, okay? I'm just telling you right now. <clears throat> and I'm looking at some of you, like some of you, I did your weddings. I let you say these things, all right? Uh, how about this one? I promise to always be by your side, to flirt, hug, kiss, and laugh with you. Two weeks, tops, come on. <laughs> how about this? I promise to always forgive, forget, let go, and love more. Six months, right? I mean, and then this is one of my favorites. I promise never to criticize or complain or create negativity in our relationship. Like you didn't even get through your honeymoon and keep that one, right? Come on. And every wedding I've ever officiated was between two people who genuinely believed that they would, you know, had every intention of keeping these promises. But the problem is we go into marriage with the assumption that uh, if I make a promise to someone, that's better than preparation. But preparation goes a lot further than just promises. And I can tell you that uh, this whole series, my goal with this is to help strengthen us in our marriages because uh, a little bit about me and my wife, we've been married for almost 25 years. Come, we'll have our 25th anniversary coming up, our next one. And uh, here's what I can tell you. Uh, we're still figuring it out. We're still in the trenches. Uh, we're still, you know, we're, we're still working at this thing because a marriage is not something that you just let drift. It's one of those things that you constantly work at. And uh, even almost 25 years in, I can tell you we've been through lots of different seasons. Uh, there's a lot I'd like to say to me 25 years ago. Uh, some things that are like, whoa, didn't see that coming. And here's what I know, just to give you a little bit of our backstory, uh, we met when we were 16 years old. In fact, the day that we met, somebody actually took a picture. This is us, the day that we met. Check this out. Looks, uh, <laughs> I look different. She looks exactly the same. And uh, yeah, I'm rocking that flannel and that necklace. We met in the 1900s. So that's what every guy did back then. 
And then we, uh, we were friends and then we started dating. So about a year later, this is us uh, on a date in uh, Maple Grove Community Center at the ice skating rink. And so we were hanging out there, rocking the hemp necklace there. That's awesome. And then uh, this is a couple years later, we got married. This is us on our wedding day. And this is almost 25 years ago. It's unbelievable. And there's so much that I want to tell those guys. Like, wow, there's so much that you didn't know you were in for. Because the day after that picture was taken, we jumped on an airplane and we went on a honeymoon to Hawaii. And it was awesome, man. All we did every day was lay out by the beach, lay out by the pool, right? Go for walks, do some swimming, try some fun restaurants. The biggest decision I had to make every day was swim trunks or Speedo. (laughs) Obvious answer, right? And so it's amazing how good marriage is when all you do is relax, when you have no stress. It's amazing how marriage is, how easy it is when you take stress out of the equation. And so on the flight home, we said, we should do this every year. And that was almost a quarter century ago, <laughs> right? And then we got home and we started to live our lives. We got back, and back to work and, uh, you know, we were in school at the time and back to the routine. And it was like, okay, I discovered things about her that I didn't find so pleasant. And she started to discover some things about me that weren't quite as adorable as she once thought, you know? And we started to realize it didn't take us long to discover we both handle conflict really differently. It didn't take us long to discover that, you know, we, we have some major differences. We, we had different ideas of what quality time means. It didn't take us long to discover that she liked romantic comedies and I liked good movies. <laughs> and so we've had to learn how to navigate the different stages of marriage from newlyweds to, uh, you know, uh, newlyweds to like, okay, now we had our first kid to like multiple kids to then like teenage kids. Now we have a kid who's married and teenagers and a nine-year-old. So we've got like this whole spread and and every season is different. And every season brings its own stresses. Every season brings its own challenges. Every season brings these different things. And so when we were first dating and getting married, like loving that other person seems so easy and we think it always will be. And then it's not. And you have to learn how to navigate that. And so here's what I want to say this morning as we kick off the series. Over the next few weeks, this is my prayer, because I know all of us are coming from different relational status. Some of you are single. Some of you are engaged. Some of you are dating. Some of you are married. Some of you are single again. Some of you are remarried. Some of you are uh, all just runs the gamut. But whatever your relational status, I know that there's some principles that we can take from the scriptures that can give us wisdom for how to live and thrive in our relationships. And so if you're in a relationship with a significant other, I would encourage you to pull one thing. Not, not everything's going to stick, not everything's going to land, but if you can grab one thing and go, this is one practical thing that I can put into practice that will help my relationship this week. And uh, throughout this series, that's my goal, is that you'll be able to grab one or two or three things that you can go, this is some wisdom that will really help me. And at the end of the day, even though we're all coming from uh, different backgrounds and varying points of view and experiences, my prayer is that we'll all encounter the grace and the goodness of God through this series and gain some wisdom from his truth that will help us live our lives and strengthen and thrive in our relationships. And so with that as our goal, I want to go all the way back to the beginning, the creation narrative, and I want to look at uh, God's purpose for marriage because marriage was actually God's idea in the first place. And when you think about it, uh, you look at some of these verses recorded for us in the creation narrative, we discover there's three major roles that God designed for us to have in a marriage relationship. 
And so we're going to walk through those three roles today. The first one is this. God designed us to be friends. That, that might be crazy to think about, right? But the first thing is that marriage is about friendship. And before you get married, and man, I'm telling you, if you're in middle school, if you're in high school, if you're single right now, lock this in. The, the most important part of marriage is that you become friends. Because when you get married, you spend a lot more time hanging out as friends than you do making love. Like, it's not even 60-40. <laughs> and if you don't have a solid basis of friendship, it's going to be really difficult to thrive in your marriage relationship. When you read the creation story in Genesis, you get this account of God, and he's, he's creating things. He speaks things into existence. And then each time, he looks at what he's created, and he says, this is good. So he creates light and he says, it's good. And he creates boundaries and land and seas and trees. And he creates all these creatures. And then it says, God creates man. And he says, let's create man in our image. And God says, it's good. And then there's this one shift. So this is like, this is where the music changes in a movie. And all of a sudden, it's the only time in the scriptures where God says that something is not good, that he's created. And here's what he says in Genesis chapter 2. He says, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. Uh, other translations say, uh, I will make someone who is suitable for him. And being suited to your spouse is a good thing. Uh, having friendship with your spouse is a good thing. This means marriage is God's idea, and he created men and women to exist together in friendship. And you want to be married and truly enjoy your marriage. Some people have a, a sense of duty when it comes to their marriage, right? It's like, well, we want to get to the end because we made a covenant before God, so we better stick it out. It's like, oh, wow, that sounds great. I've been in settings before where they've been like, oh, so-and-so, this couple's been married for 50 years, and everybody cheers and claps. But my question is like, was it any good? Because 50 miserable years doesn't sound like something we should cheer for. And a lot of people have this sense of duty when it comes to marriage, but you don't want to be married out of duty. You want to be married out of delight. You want to enjoy friendship with your spouse. Dr. John Gottman is a, a psychologist who uh, has written a bunch of books. He has a, actually the, the Institute of Marriage, and uh, he studies uh, couples and has, over the last 30 years, gotten to the point where within 15 minutes, he has a 97% accuracy to tell if a couple is headed towards divorce. And one of the things that he talks about is that the most basic foundation of a healthy marriage is friendship that you're friends with this person. It's the person you spend a lot of time with. And so how do you develop friendship as you continue to grow in your marriage? A big key to developing friendship is understanding. The key to friendship is understanding how many friends do you have where you don't understand their point of view. Even if you don't see eye to eye, that you at least say, I, I understand where you're coming from. And pausing to take time to understand is a key in friendship. And I'm going to say something that might be a little shocking right now, but men and women are different. <laughs> I know, right? It's crazy. Uh, relationships are not neutral. Relationships are either progressing or moving backward. They're, they're not static. And, and the number one thing that fights against friendship, especially in marriage, is just a lack of understanding, especially as it relates to our differences. I love what uh, King Solomon writes in, in the Proverbs, in the Hebrew Scriptures. He writes this, that the purposes of a person's heart are deep waters. It, it means they're there, but sometimes they're covered up. They're, they're in deep waters. You've got to fish for them. But a person with understanding will draw it out. A person, if you will pause 
long enough to understand where the other person is coming from, you can draw the purposes out of them. You can begin to see where they're coming from. But it's like you got to fish for it. you got to dig for it. you you got to pull it out of the deep waters. And one of the biggest things that will fight against your friendship in marriage is the differences between men and women and, and the expectations that we bring with us. And if you don't understand uh, those differences, it can be really difficult. In fact, uh, scientifically speaking, there's about 6,000 differences between men and women. It's pretty wild to think about. This is like you can even, if you, if you were to set the scriptures aside and just look at science, uh, th there's this thing that's in all of us. It's the, it's the highway that connects our left side of our brain to our right side of our brain. It's called the corpus callosum. And here's what happens in utero. Uh, when a baby is in the mother's womb, uh, what happens is for a, for a boy baby, that gets flooded with testosterone. For a girl baby, that gets flooded with estrogen. And, and you know what estrogen does when it hits the corpus callosum? It turns it into a superhighway. Left side of the brain and right side of the brain, uh, there's this massive flow of information going back and forth. It's why virtually every study suggests that women are smarter than men. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> when, when testosterone floods the brain, do you know what it does to the corpus callosum? It destroys it. There's like nothing going back and forth, right? It's flooded with sexuality and aggression. This is, we know these major differences between men and women. It's why uh, for, a, for a boy, the first diaper they've ever changed is their own kid. But my daughters, they've been changing diapers since they were like three. They were in diapers, had baby dolls, changing the diapers of the baby dolls. It's why you never hand a baby to a 14-year-old boy and go, here, change the diaper, right? This never happens. Because women, there's a difference. They're just naturally uh, more nourishing. My wife's whole life is about the flourishing of our kids. Like if we were to go down on a ship, she'd be holding them above her heads as she sinks in the water, you know? And I'd be like, which one of these kids is the most buoyant? <laughs> you know? I need to reprioritize my life maybe, but... Left and right brain for a man isn't that connected. For women, it is a super highway. It is 14 lanes and thousands of cars and all of it runs smoothly. And guys are driving an old jalopy just trying not to fall off the side of the road, all right? Left side of the brain, right side of the brain. They're not talking. That's why a guy gets to the fridge and he's just like, it's not there. It's not, it's not there. It's not there. And then ladies, you just walk by and you don't even look. You're just like, idiot. And you just pull it out, you know? It's like, just hand it to him. This is why men have such compartmentalized lives. Our lives, our brains look like a garage filled with boxes. And so what we do, everything's compartmentalized. And so here's what we do. When we have to deal with any particular topic, we go to that box. We pull out that box very carefully so that we don't disrupt any of the other boxes. And we deal with whatever's in that box. And when we're done, we put it back. Ladies, your brains are like the Christmas lights that get tangled and will forever be tangled and will never be detangled. Everything is connected to everything else and it's constantly moving and constantly going. In fact, uh, Professor Ruben Gurr, he's a uh, neurophysiologist at the University of Pennsylvania. This is what he writes about the electrical activity of men's and women's brains. He says this, 70% of the electrical activity of men's brains shut down when they're in a resting state. Not even sleeping, like just resting. Like when ESPN is on. <laughs> women's brains, on the other hand, maintain a full 90% of their electrical, uh, electrical activity. Even when they're asleep, 90%, it's always firing. It never stops. That's why you can be in a, in a passionate moment of, you know, marital intimacy and she'll be like, did you remember to take out the trash? 
You're like, oh, you're killing me, man. It's because everything's connected to everything. You've got all this RAM, all this processing power, right? And, and so for a woman, everything's connected. The budget has to do with sex, has to do with the kids, has to do with the conversation you had two weeks ago and house projects. And she's stressed because she's trying to solve all of that. Whereas men aren't. <laughs> In fact, this is, they say that a man's brain can actually, this is the term, flatline. <laughs> and guys... You know this. That's your favorite part of the day. <laughs> you could just be driving along in your car and it's just like, and then, and then you arrive and you're like, I don't, I don't even know how I got here. <laughs> and this is why friendship in marriage sometimes can be difficult because we bring such incredible differences into this relationship and yet it's the two becoming one. But we're so different from each other. And, and in marriage, it can sometimes be so difficult because our differences can cause conflict that we don't always know how to navigate. And here's why you have to remember when it comes to these differences. It's not wrong. It's just different. It's not wrong, just different. We're going to dive into how to solve conflict next week. Next week, we're doing uh, how to conflict without killing each other. That's going to be our topic next week. But the key to any friendship is pausing long enough to understand where someone else is coming from. Why does my spouse do that? Why do they say that? Part of it is their wiring. Part of it is their childhood. Part of it is the expectations they brought with them into the marriage. Part of it is, I mean, there's so many different factors. And if we don't pause long enough to seek understanding from our spouse, it's really difficult to grow in friendship. And you begin to think your way is better than her way. You begin to think your way is better than his way. But like the pieces of a puzzle, man, if you were exactly alike, you wouldn't fit together to make the whole picture. It's, it's our differences that complement each other and that paint the full picture of friendship in that marriage relationship. But the only way that that works, the only way that that thrives is if we seek understanding, if we don't rush to judgment about our spouse, if we assume the best about our spouse. In fact, uh, John Gottman says this, that uh, couples who are, you know, go the distance and, and whose marriages thrive, that they, they assume the best about each other and they are generous in that assumption. What if we just assumed the best about each other? That would really help us understanding and it would help create a foundation of friendship in our marriage. So that's the first role. God designed us to be friends. And friendship is a foundation for a healthy marriage. Now, here's the second role God designed for us. God designed us to be partners. Partners. In fact, if you go back to the very same verse in Genesis chapter two, where God says, man, it's not good for man to be alone. Not only does he uh, provide for friendship, but here's what else we read. We read that it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. Now, this verse gets so misinterpreted and so abused. Uh, and, and oftentimes, uh, churches uh, kind of communicate this message that there's some kind of hierarchy in, in marriage. And you're like, he's the leader and you're just to help him. It's like complete misunderstanding of uh, this word because this word in the Hebrew uh, language, it was originally written in Hebrew and it actually is a word that's used throughout the Hebrew scriptures to describe God. That God becomes a helper to the nation of Israel. Well, how can that be? If, if, if there's some kind of hierarchy, if it's meant to be like this lesser position or like, you know, the man's in charge and you're just supposed to come along and be this assistant, it doesn't mean that at all. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, this word is... God comes along to help the nation of Israel and he helps them and encourages them. He strengthens them. It is a partnership. In fact, this word really should be interpreted as partner. 
And God puts a mission in front of human beings and he, they can't accomplish it without each other. The, the man and the woman can't accomplish the thing that God's put in front of them to do without the other, that there is this partnership. And God says, I'm giving you this task together. Go into all the world and bring the rule and reign of God to creation, but you can't do it without each other. Together, you, you, you reflect the full reflection of who I am. And for some of you, it's possible that the reason that you have some conflict, the reason that you have some issues, the reason that you have so much stress in your marriage relationship is because you don't have a mission that you're partnering together to work towards, to accomplish. Your, your mindset isn't like, okay, God, my mission in the world is to use everything that you've given me to reflect your love, to reflect your glory, to, to help bring your kingdom to earth and to serve others. That's a big mission that you can partner with somebody on. And, and for some of us, our mission is, you know, get a new kitchen and raise kids that don't swear very often. That's not a mission. That's not a mission big enough to give your life to. And if you don't have a big enough mission, you're going to end up fighting with each other. And some of you are experiencing friendly fire in your marriage because you don't have a mission outside of let's get a new house and let's get a boat and let's go on vacation. And it's these temporary things and you end up fighting with each other over temporary things that don't last for eternity. And you were created to be partners in life, to go after something bigger than yourselves that will make a difference for eternity. I wonder what would happen if some of us maybe started to redirect our attention, our focus, our energy toward an eternal mission that's in partnership with your spouse, where you both know we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. We're going to give our energy and our focus and our resources and our time towards something that will actually outlive our lives. That when we die, the ripple effect of how we lived our lives will continue on into the next generation. You'd probably experience a pretty serious shift in perspective as it relates to your issues and your conflicts. Now, I'll tell you, for my wife and I, we have issues. Just like anybody else, right? We've got uh, conflicts. Uh, we fight. We argue, uh, we've got stress, we've got bills, we've got uh, kids, we've got uh, house projects, we've got uh, routines and schedules and all kinds of things. We deal with the same things that anybody else deals with. But what keeps us grounded in our marriage is that we both recognize we are partners in something that is bigger than ourselves. We, we are actually both giving our lives to something that, that we believe with all of our hearts will outlive our lives. We're investing in things that have eternal significance with our time, with our energy, with our conversations, with our resources. And what keeps us grounded is we understand we have something we're working on together in partnership that is so much bigger than a disagreement over something temporary. Do we have disagreements over stuff temporary? Absolutely. Do we have conflict? Are we different? Do we, do we like, do those differences, you know, mesh up against each other sometimes? Absolutely. But here's what we've learned. Man, when, when we're pushing towards something that's bigger than all of that, all of that stuff diminishes in the process. It's, it's helped us to navigate conflict and navigate stress and brought us closer together because we're pushing in the same direction. And so here you are in the midst of partnership. Well, for what? To accomplish something great. To, to, to say, man, I, I want to be in it with this person for, till, till death do us part, for better or for worse. And that doesn't mean your marriage gets worse. It means sometimes life throws things at you that are worse. 
And you're committed to each other. And you have to work together with your partner to get through that. Because see, anybody can get married. Anybody can put on a tux and put on a dress and invite some friends and family and throw a party. But marriage isn't about just the first day. Marriage is about the last day. It's going, okay, we have this picture of where we want to be. It's bigger than what we're going through in this season. And some of you, you're young, you have young kids, you're, you're in your 20s, you're in your 30s, you've got young kids, multiple young kids, you're in the thick of it, you haven't slept in three years. And you're just like, oh, I'm just trying to survive one, you know, for one more day. I'm just holding on. And the thought of like thriving in marriage is just like, we're just trying to get through this season and make it. And I understand that, but don't get bogged down in the weeds of that season and that moment. Shift your perspective. Picture yourself at 85 years old and you got kids and grandkids and maybe great-grandkids and your marriage has thrived and you're not going to be thinking about that season. Keep that picture in mind and move towards that in this season. You need a mission to move toward together. Your marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. You're saying, no matter what, I'm committed to you. We're going to get through this season because we're, we're, we're shooting for something bigger. And we're investing our time and energy and resources in something that has eternal significance. I can tell you, the picture for us, man, we want to be that couple in the old folks' home, still holding hands, going to dinner at 2 p.m., <laughs> taking hits off of each other's oxygen tank, you know, <laughs> riding our scooters down the hall. It's going to be amazing. Isn't that the picture that we want? But you got to partner for something bigger than just what's right in front of you. you. You were created by God to have a mission. And so maybe it's worth sitting down with your spouse and going, what is the mission? It, it can't just be try to retire before we're 60. It can't just be like try to pay off the house or m maybe someday we can get a boat or like those are good things. There's nothing wrong with those things, but there's got to be a mission given your life to that helps you see eternal value and eternal significance because you're really designed to be partners. Now, here's one of the big keys to partnership. Affirmation. All of us, including myself, we have insecurities, don't we? We've got questions about like, do you still love me? Do you still value me? Do you, like, am I the most important person in your life? But we don't say it that way, right? We all need affirmation. There's two types of communication, logical and emotional. Here's logical communication. The sky is blue. I have socks on. That's just information. That's just data, right? Emotional communication is what something means. Logical communication is looking for information. Emotional communication is looking for affirmation. And so when we mess these up, it affects our partnership. Let me give you a couple examples. Uh, a, a woman asks, do I look good in this dress? That's not a logical question. She is not looking for information. She's looking for affirmation. Yes, you are the most beautiful person I've ever seen in my life. Right? A man says, do you think I make enough money providing for our family? He's not looking for information. Well, actually, I was talking to Sarah, and she said Joe makes like three times what you do. So come on, dude. <laughs> it's not what he's looking for. He's looking for affirmation. And there are some questions we ask when we're looking for affirmation. Do you love me? Do you value me? We would never ask those specific questions, but they're always running underneath the emotional questions that we ask. So let me give you some examples and, and you shout out, logical or emotional, okay? Where are my car keys? Is that logical or emotional? It's just logical. Yeah. It's just, I just need to know where my car keys are. What we don't need is uh, you, this happens to you every single day. You are so disorganized. I can't believe this is the type of person you are. <laughs> Wasn't looking for that. Just need to know where my keys are. <laughs> it's logical. Am I the best lover you've ever had? 
Emotional, right? Not logical. Nobody's looking for like, oh, let me run through the list. Would you marry me all over again? That's emotional, right? How about this? Could you ever imagine being with someone else? That's an emotional question. That's not a logical question, right? How about this? When a guy says to his wife, do you remember that touchdown I scored in high school? That's an emotional question. What he's not looking for is like, get over yourself, dude. Like it was 30 years ago, all right? What he's looking for is, yes, you were amazing. You're an incredible athlete. I remember you scored that touchdown and we all cheered and I thought you were so sexy. <laughs> That's what he's looking for. And let me tell you why we need this, okay? Ladies, if you are here with your boyfriend, your fiance, your spouse, I just want you to put your hand right here, right on his arm right now. Go ahead and do that. Yeah. What did he just do? He flexed. <laughs> what is the matter with us? Why, why do we do this? Uh, if my wife touches me here, it's instantly like, oh, let me, uh, let me show you what I got. Uh. <laughs> Can you see how insecure we are as creatures? Unbelievable. So we, we have to make a commitment, not only to understanding, but to communicating affirmation to our spouse. Because over and over again, we, we, we have these questions, we have these insecurities. And to be in a partnership, we need to affirm one another that I love you, I care about you, I, I wanna fill up your tank. I want you to know that you're loved, know that you're valued. In fact, Dr. Gottman says this, uh, divorce does not come from an increase in conflict. So if you're like, I don't know, we, can't, we, tend, to, like, we tend to have lots of conflicts, that's not necessarily unhealthy. We'll talk about how to navigate that, but uh, he says uh, much more concerning is a decrease in affection, that you're not affirming your spouse anymore. In fact, a red flag is not when someone gets mad. It's when they stop responding and they go quiet that apathy starts to set in. Learn how to communicate affection and affirmation and remind your spouse uh, you'll be much better equipped to navigate conflict and have a healthy marriage long term. If, if when you're not fighting, you're communicating affirmation. So friends first. Partners, second. Here's the third thing. Lovers. Friends, partners, and lovers. Now, let's go back to the creation narrative. And what we find is that God not only gives them friendship, God not only says you guys are partners to accomplish something together, but also you're lovers. And here's what uh, we find in the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Fill the earth, God says. This is God's plan. Some people think God is anti-sex. And all I want you to know is, it was his idea. He invented it. This is the God who created two people and put them in the garden, buck naked, and said, go make babies. This is God's idea, right? And if you study the scriptures, what you discover, not only in the creation narrative, all through the Hebrew scriptures, in Jesus, all through the New Testament writers, what you discover is this. God designed sex. It's designed by God to build intimacy between a husband and wife. Right on. <laughs> it is a way to renew the covenant that you made on your wedding day. It's, that can't happen if you don't have a covenant to renew. And so what happens in our culture is we've decided this, and not just in our culture, uh, all through human history, we've said, you know what, God, that's too restrictive. The idea that you would create sex to be specifically between a man and woman in marriage is too restrictive. We need more liberty. And throughout human history, we've taken more liberty. 
And we've said, we need more liberty than that. That's too restrictive. And what's happened is that sex has actually become enslaving. It's actually trapped us. It doesn't help us feel more free and help us feel more secure. It, it, when, when we just swipe right and treat it as just purely physical, what happens is it actually breeds insecurity into our relationship, not more security. It traps us. It doesn't leave us more free. What happens is God says, I designed this for marriage, and, and you're doing what I designed for married people to do, but you're doing it without the covenant commitment that married people have. And so rather than making you feel more and more secure, it's actually making you feel more and more insecure. God is not against you. He's for you, and he doesn't want you to experience that. And so what we've done is we've made sex purely physical. We think, well, we can just have sex for pleasure and not deal with the spiritual and relational and emotional uh, sort of fallout for that decision. But God says, no, it's a precious gift. It's designed to be enjoyed in the context of a committed marriage relationship between husband and wife. Now, all through the scriptures, it teaches this. But here's, here's what fuels intimacy. Intimacy is fueled by exclusivity. Every piece of research, even if you're like, okay, well, of course you're going to say that because this is a church and you're a pastor. And, oh, okay, I get it. Even if you're like not a Bible person or a church person, every piece of research that's conducted confirms the people having the greatest sexual pleasure are people 50 and over in long-term married relationships. In fact, all of, all of the statistics, all of the data shows that people who are just, you know, I'm single and I can just have sex with whoever I want to and, and you know, go outside of the, whatever parameters, regardless of what you believe, all of the statistics show that they are having less sex and less fulfilling sex. Even if you don't believe in God. All the science, all the data points to the affirmation that this is how God created it. And God doesn't say that because he's trying to keep you from experiencing something. God says that because he wants you to experience intimacy and pleasure. In the first century, people did whatever they wanted to with their sexuality. And then Jesus came onto the scene and, and introduced a brand new sexual ethic. The scriptures tell us, Paul writes, that your body's not your own. God purchased it at a high price. And now, instead of sex being your master and trying to just figure out how do I satisfy myself, this brand new sexual ethic entered the first century and it changed everything. And really this new sexual ethic that entered the culture was simply an acknowledgement of God's original design. And so here, here's the, uh, the thought behind this. If you're single, you, you almost have to commit to not having sex or you will. And if you're married, you have to commit to having sex or you won't. And it's just God's, God's design is oftentimes thwarted because of the, the cultural pressures that we experience. And yet here's what the Apostle Paul writes in the first century to people who are uh, married about their sexuality. And it applies to us. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. By the way, We've turned in our culture sex into something that is consumptive. It's something that I get to please me. But all throughout the scriptures, sex is actually a gift to be given. It's not something that I take to consume. It's something that I give to someone else to show them love and intimacy and value. We have flipped the tables and it's caused us to be enslaved to our own sexuality. So Paul continues, do not deprive each other of sexual relations. 
unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Now, I've never sat with a couple who's struggling sexually and been like, we've just been praying a lot. <laughs> Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul says, this is a gift that we give to each other. It's not something that we take from each other. It's something that we give. And so if you're not married and you're having sex, God says, stop. Not because he's going to be mad at you if you do, but because that behavior will enslave you. It will, it will breed more insecurity into your relationship with that person. And if you're married and you're not having sex, God says, start. Not because he's going to be mad at you if you don't, but because it builds intimacy into your marriage. You stand before one another completely exposed and completely accepted, fully known and fully loved. And this is the, the area, that one area of your life that you, only your spouse is designed to satisfy. And the idea of intimacy is that I'm, I'm fully exposed but fully accepted, which is exactly where we find ourselves in our own sin before God, completely exposed and yet completely accepted. It is a reminder that as flawed as we are, we are more accepted by God and loved by God than we ever dared hope. Now, there are all kinds of really heavy issues that people work through, different things from their past and things like that, and I, I, we can address those at another time, but in a typical healthy marriage, God's design is for you to be friends and partners and lovers. Friends, partners, and lovers. But it's an ecosystem. You have to build one on top of the other, and they all work together in a partnership. So you, you can't just skip friendship and partnership and move right to a sex life. It doesn't work that way. And you can't rush to being lovers if you haven't built a friendship. And sometimes in marriage, people are like, well, what's going on here? We don't have, uh, we're not having as much sex as I want. It's like, but you don't, you're not friends. You got to be friends first. And you shouldn't also just be friends who run a free bread and breakfast for a bunch of little gremlins. It's a whole ecosystem, physical, emotional, spiritual. So what does God say? I created you for intimacy, for your pleasure. Now, some of you didn't realize this, that God is actually pro-sexual pleasure. It was his idea. So I'm just going to uh, read a few verses. God is the most pro-sex person in the universe. I'm going to read a few verses from Song of Solomon. This is actually a book of uh, Old Testament erotic poetry. Hebrew guys were not allowed to read this until they were after 14 years old. So I'm just going to read a few verses to give you an idea because some of you are like, you know, all I hear about is the Virgin Mary, and that's the one thing I don't want to be. So that's why I don't, you know, God must be anti-sex. Listen, I'm just going to read a few verses from this. We're going to close in just a minute. I'm just going to warn you, after I read some of these verses, you might need a cigarette. <laughs> like a lily among thistles is my darling among young women. Like the finest apple tree in the orchards is my lover among other young men. I sit in his delightful shade and taste his delicious fruit. This is all poetry. How about this one? This is him talking about his lover. He says, you are slender like a palm tree. Your breasts are like its clusters of fruit. I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. Maybe, uh, may your breasts be like grape clusters and the fragrance of your breath like apples. May your kisses be as exciting as the best wine. How about this? This is her talking about her lover. Come, my love, let us go out to the fields and spend the night among the wildflowers. Let us get up early and go to the vineyards and there I will give you my love. So if you're like, man, I, I feel like even when, when the church talks about sex, it's like, you know, lights out, missionary position only, you know? But listen, God, this is adventurous. She's like, let's go to the woods. Let's have sex outside. And like, I thought sex is for procreation. 
Not once do they mention kids in any of this. Because kids kill the mood. Right? It's been said that sex leads to little kids, and kids lead to little sex. So God says, procreation? Yes. Intimacy? Yes. Pleasure? Yes. It's God designed it for your pleasure. But much like a fire, when it's contained inside the fire pit, it's amazing and it's fun and it's memorable and it's got purpose. But outside of the fire pit, it becomes destructive and harmful. God just says, look, because I'm for you and I don't want to see you get burned by this precious gift, keep it in the parameters for which I created it. Not because I'm anti-sex, but because I'm crazy about you. So God created marriage to be a covenant where two people become one monetarily, uh, physically, emotionally, in every possible way. And the way to do that is make a commitment to being friends, partners, and lovers. Now, uh, I'm, I, we're, we're going over. Let me close real quick. Here's the point at the end of the day. In Philippians, the Apostle Paul writes about how Jesus set the example for us. And here's what he says. He says, don't be selfish. Now, we probably could have summed up this entire talk in these three words. Like if some of us would go home and put these three words into practice, our marriage would get 10 times better. Don't be selfish. Paul says, don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Paul would then go on to say, this is what Jesus did for us. Though he was God, he didn't cling to that. Instead, he let go of his rights as God. He became a human and he died on a cross. In other words, what Jesus did for you and me is he put us and our needs and our interests ahead of himself. And then he just says, now love each other like that. Do that in all your relationships, particularly with your spouse. What would happen if in your marriage you both just decided, I'm going to put you first, and I'm going to put you first. I'm going to put you first. I'm going to put you first. And what if we just worked every day to become the best friend and partner and lover that we could be to our spouse? Well, who should do it first, him or her? Yes. What if we both just said, we're going to work on that. We're going to do that. I'm going to put you first no matter what. And she, she, both of you said, I'm going to put you first no matter what. And since that's exactly what Jesus did for us, the biggest secret to a great marriage is not to go after a great marriage. It's to go after Jesus. Pursue Jesus. Pursue becoming like Jesus and loving like Jesus. And what you'll discover is that that will bleed its way into your marriage relationship. And you can learn how to be friends, partners, and lovers. And then, Jesus allowed himself to be put to death. His body was laid in a tomb, and according to multiple eyewitnesses, he rose from the dead. That means there's more to this life than this life, and you've been invited to be a part of God's family. If you've never said yes to that, I want to invite you. I, I hope what you, what you walk out of here today with is that God created you, and God loves you, and he is for you. And if you've never said yes to that invitation, you can just agree with this prayer. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times I've walked away from you, and thank you for never walking away from me. And I want to say yes to your invitation. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. And help me to follow you as best as I know how from this moment on. And God, for every one of us, no matter where we find ourselves relationally, we pray that you would help us to commit to friendship and partnership and intimacy in our marriage relationships. More than anything, that we'd follow the example of Jesus and that we would, God, put others first in every relationship. And as we strengthen our marriages and our families, may we be a light to the world around us. We pray this in your name. Amen.